on October 8, 1963, soul singer Sam Cooke pulled his Maserati up to the brand new Holiday Inn North in Shreveport, Louisiana. Sam and his entourage had traveled through the night, and now at 7.30 in the morning, they were bone-tired and ready to check into their reserved rooms. The white service clerk had other ideas. His unease showed as he greeted Sam and his guests. The clerk claimed that the hotel was fully booked. Road-weary and frustrated, Sam let him have it. He yelled at the clerk, asking if he thought Sam was some sort of ignorant fool. Sam asked if he knew who he was and demanded to speak to a manager. Sam's wife, Barbara, was frightened. Just weeks before, in the same town, armed riot squads and mounted officers had attacked 500 black churchgoers as they left a memorial mass for the Birmingham church bombing that killed four little black girls. Shreveport was an incredibly dangerous place for a black man. Sam was a world-famous recording star and celebrity, but Barbara was afraid that if the police were called, all they would see would be the color of his skin. Barbara begged him to stop before the clerk called the cops. But Sam wasn't one to back down from injustice, and he saw the way they were being treated for the racist discrimination that it was. He was angry. With a quiver in her voice, Barbara told Sam that he'd get himself killed. He retorted, They ain't gonna kill me because I'm Sam Cooke. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on murdered soul singer and songwriter Sam Cooke. Often called the King of Soul, he rose to the top of the charts in the 1950s, bridging the gap between soul and popular music. In 1964, his rise was cut short when he was shot to death by Bertha Franklin, the manager of the Hacienda Motel in Los Angeles. This week, we'll discuss the story of Sam Cooke and the fateful events that led to his death at age 33. Sam was poised to be a true breakout star and was becoming visibly involved in the civil rights movement at the time of his death. Next week, we'll discuss the aftermath of the murder and dive into the myriad inconsistencies in the case. We'll debate whether Sam was killed in self-defense or if there was a larger plot at work. Lisa Boyer, a beautiful Chinese-American girl of 22, couldn't help but giggle at the tall, suave man cracking jokes in the next booth. 
She was having dinner with three friends the night of December 10, 1964, and was captivated by the stylish, affable man who seemed to know everybody in Martoni's Italian restaurant. Soon, she'd come to recognize him as celebrity Sam Cooke. As he got up to sing one of his hits, Good News, Sam made eye contact with Lisa from across the restaurant. Lisa peered back at Sam from under her dark bangs and smiled. A guitar player introduced him to Lisa after the set. Sam remarked he'd seen her around and asked her how her night was going. Although she undoubtedly knew she was talking to a star, Lisa responded coolly and reportedly greeted him like an old friend. In no time at all, Lisa and Sam were cozied up together in a booth, a drink in front of each of them. In between greetings from friends and fans, Sam asked Lisa if she'd like a ride in his new red Ferrari. She readily agreed. At least that's how Lisa later told the judge it happened. What Lisa didn't include in her testimony was her own background as a role artist. Lisa, whose real name was Elisa Boyer, would pose under different aliases such as Lisa Lee, Crystal Chan Young, or Elsie Nakama. She'd proposition Johns for sex, and then the second they left the room or fell asleep, she would rob them blind. As far as Sam Cooke was concerned, Lisa was his date that night. But to Lisa, Sam Cooke looked like a juicy target. Sam Cooke was shot to death in the early hours of December 11, 1964. The official story was that he drunkenly broke into the management office at the Hacienda Motel looking for Lisa Boyer. He was shot in self-defense by the night manager, Bertha Franklin. However, Sam's family and many of his contemporaries in the black music community didn't believe this was the whole story. Theories abound as to whether Lisa and Bertha conspired to rob him together, or if Bertha was hired by his spurned wife. Some even think that Sam's increasing activism and involvement with the civil rights movement made him a target for white supremacists. It's hard to parse the true story of that night, but what's easy to see is that nothing was as straightforward as it seemed when it came to the murder of Sam Cooke. To place this crime into context, you must first understand the social climate of the United States in the early 1960s. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln struck a blow against legal slavery with the Emancipation Proclamation. However, slave owners who'd made fortunes in an economy based on unpaid labor were loath to lose their control. Newly free black sharecroppers were often forced to sign exploitative labor contracts that prevented them from making enough money to buy land or start businesses. Free blacks were guaranteed the right to vote and citizenship under the 14th and 15th Amendments, which were passed in 1868 and 1870. However, local governments often got around this by using restrictive grandfather clauses and other loopholes to disenfranchise African Americans. By 1963, 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, black people in the United States faced barriers when they tried to vote, faced discrimination in housing and jobs, and were treated like inferior citizens. 
Many in the South were forced to live their lives segregated from the white population, consistently relegated to poor facilities and the backs of buses and theaters. Voter suppression policies such as local ID and literacy laws were common. In the early 1960s, many activists saw the solution to civil rights violations through nonviolent protests. Through the encouragement of leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. and organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, activists organized peaceful sit-ins and bus rides to protest discrimination. There were also militant factions in the civil rights movement, including the Nation of Islam and the Black Panthers, and leaders like Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael. They held various nuanced positions, but overall tended to support black pride and black separatism. They were dedicated to protecting the black community's lives, rights, and property by any means necessary. White supremacists took all of these actions as a declaration of war. Black activists and allies were frequent targets of violence, sometimes even perpetrated and ordered by the establishment. On August 28, 1963, over 250,000 people participated in the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The event was capped off with Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech, which he delivered at the National Mall and was broadcast nationwide. The same year, student protesters marching in Birmingham, Alabama for an end to discrimination and segregation were attacked by the police. The Birmingham Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connor, directed the police to unleash their dogs and to turn high-pressure fire hoses on the young protesters. White supremacist groups like the KKK burned crosses in the yards of black activists and sympathetic whites. These organizations were determined to terrorize the black community to keep it from disrupting the racist status quo of the South. Amidst all the chaos, the early 1960s were a watershed moment for the integration of popular music and activism. Topical songs like Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn tore up the charts. Odetta, a folk musician with blues and jazz influences, was known as the voice of the civil rights movement. Songs like her Oh Freedom, which she sang to the crowd at the March on Washington, inspired later folk artists like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez. Soul singer Sam Cooke was garnering national acclaim and praise at the same time that the struggle for civil rights was reaching its zenith. He had long been familiar with major players like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, but it wasn't until 1963 that he began to dip his feet into the activist pool. Sam released a masterpiece of a folk song in February 1964 called A Change Is Gonna Come. He was selling millions of records and counted the top blues musicians of the day among his personal friends. He was poised to do something even greater until Bertha Franklin's bullet stopped his heart in 1964. We'll talk more about Sam Cooke and his rise to fame after this. Now, back to the story. It was often said of Sam Cooke, the king of soul, that he was, quote, blues born and church bred. 
He was born in 1931, the fifth of eight children born to Annie May and Reverend Charles Cook of Clarksdale, Mississippi. Music was a part of Sam's life from the start. His father, a Baptist minister, loved gospel music and often played records in the house. When the family moved to Chicago in 1933, they were thrust deep into the gospel scene there. Sam and his siblings soon caught the musical bug. By 1937, six-year-old Sam was a member of the Singing Children, a gospel group that included him and five of his siblings. In 1945, at the age of 14, Sam helped found a gospel quartet called the Highway QCs. It was through this group he met the young Lou Rawls and Johnny Taylor. Lou and Johnny would go on to have fabled blues and soul careers of their own and would remain close with Sam through the years. Little did these childhood friends know that in just a few short years, they would be touring across the United States together. Sam Cooke was obviously talented. He was already known for his smooth, natural singing style and powerful songwriting chops. In 1950, at the age of 19, Sam became the lead singer of the gospel group, The Soul Stirrers. But Sam's talent wasn't relegated to music. Besides his smooth tenor and songwriting chops, Sam had a knack for making the girls go wild. In fact, this would prove to be an ongoing problem in Sam's personal life. Sam married his first wife, a dancer named Dolores Didi Mohawk, on October 19, 1953. This was a complicated situation for a number of reasons, including the three babies Sam had fathered with other women earlier that year. In fact, in 1953, Sam had a girl, Linda, with his childhood sweetheart, a woman named Barbara Campbell. Sam would continue his affair with Barbara throughout his marriage to Dee Dee. In his professional life, Sam quickly realized that he'd never fulfill his potential while singing gospel. So, in 1956, he released his first soul single, a song called Lovable. The record was a rewrite of a gospel song, Wonderful. Afraid of alienating his gospel fans, he released the secular single under the alias Dale Cook. But it wasn't that easy for Sam to hide. Art Roop, head of Specialty Records, quickly recognized Sam's unmistakable tenor on the single. Instead of being angry, however, Art gave Sam his blessing. And with that, Sam Cook was off to the races. He added an E to the end of his name to signify a new beginning for himself. Instead of being a gospel powerhouse, he was making himself over as a rhythm and blues and soul star. With the support of the gospel community he loved, Sam took his first steps towards solo soul success. In 1957, Sam decided to put out a single recording of George Gershwin's famous aria, Summertime, from Porgy and Bess. This single led to contention between him and Specialty Records. Art Roop was no stranger to popular music, though gospel was what paid his bills. He expected Sam's solo style to be similar to one of the label's other secular hit artists, Little Richard. Art became upset when he walked into a recording studio and heard Sam practicing the Gershwin operatic ballad. He told Sam, This is not a symphony. I don't go for that stuff. 
Art thought the song wouldn't sell and demanded Sam record something more mainstream. Sam wasn't willing to compromise his vision for his debut solo single. On top of all that, Art was only paying him a measly 1% royalty on the record sales. Fed up with the bad pay and lack of control, Sam split ways with Specialty Records and released Summertime independently in 1957. Art probably regretted this move. The B-side of Summertime, a song called You Send Me, soon became a bona fide hit. It spent three weeks at number one on the Billboard pop chart and sold 2.5 million copies. Sam had grown up touring on the gospel circuit and was always a member of black groups performing for black audiences. After the hit he scored with You Send Me, white audiences started attending Sam's shows as well. It was rare at the time for black artists to play to mixed audiences, especially in the South. Most shows were segregated, and many times, famous black artists were booked for white-only auditoriums. By crossing the color barrier, Sam cemented his place in the mainstream. White supremacists were unhappy with Sam's newfound success. In the late 1950s, Sam was chosen to play live on Dick Clark's new show, The Saturday Night Beach Nut Show. The KKK found out about the announcement and campaigned against Sam and Clark in an effort to get the show canceled. Undeterred, Sam went on anyway. It was the first of many times he proved unwilling to play by old racist rules. Despite his professional success, Sam still struggled with discord in his home life. This was all self-wrought, brought on by his constant philandering with other women. In 1957, Sam moved out of his Chicago home, leaving Dee Dee and her son from a previous marriage, Joey. In November, he initiated divorce proceedings. Despite the end of their relationship, Sam was still torn apart when Dee Dee died in a car accident in March 1959. He canceled a leg of his tour to attend the funeral, which he also paid for. Later in 1959, Sam married his second wife, Barbara. Barbara was aware of his cheating habits. After all, he had cheated on Dee Dee with her, and they already had a daughter, Linda, together. Back in the music world, Sam was intent on riding the wave all the way to the top, and it seemed like he reached it in 1961 when he founded SAR Records. The label signed blues and soul acts like the Sims Twins, the Valentinos, Bobby Womack, and Sam's old Highway QC's bandmate, Johnny Taylor. Little Sam Cooke from Clarksdale had made it, or so it seemed. But the smooth sailing he enjoyed always came with a caveat. Sam was a successful, prominent, beloved black man in the United States at a time where many black people weren't even allowed to vote. But even though he was selling millions of records in the early 1960s, his tour was forced to drive hundreds of miles between shows just to find a hotel that would take black patrons. In 1961, Sam and his band were scheduled to perform for an audience in Memphis, Tennessee. Shortly before the show was supposed to begin, Sam received a telegram from the NAACP. It stated that only one quarter of the seats were reserved for black audience members and that no black fans would be allowed in the floor section of the theater. 
Sam called off the concert immediately. This was one of the only times he ever canceled a performance in his entire career. Sam had toured the Deep South before, but it wasn't until 1963 that he performed there for racially mixed audiences as a crossover artist. In an article for Rolling Stone magazine, Sam's longtime friend and touring partner Bobby Womack recounted one particular encounter they had on the spring 1963 tour when Bobby was 19 and Sam was 32. The tour included many future rhythm and blues heavyweights, like the Drifters, Johnny Thunder, and Dionne Warwick. One day in spring 1963, Sam's tour was playing to an auditorium somewhere in the South that was divided into a white side and a black side. Sam led the concert with his signature poise and cool attitude, but afterwards, he quietly seethed to Bobby. During the concert, he noticed that on the black side of the auditorium, there were police officers patrolling the aisles with dogs. They were meant to intimidate the black audience and remind them of their place. Sam told Bobby, quote, Our people are not allowed to do nothing but applaud. If they stand up and scream, the dogs are going to get them. People don't know how to react, and then they can't even leave until all the white people are gone. Sam had always been sympathetic to the fight for civil rights, mostly due to its direct effect on his life and work. He was friendly with Martin Luther King Jr. and had known Malcolm X for years, remembering him fondly as a street corner speaker outside the Apollo Theater in Harlem. In 1963, Sam became friends with Muhammad Ali. Muhammad was the greatest boxer in the ring at the time and had famously joined the Nation of Islam in 1961. The Nation of Islam was an African-American Muslim organization led by Elijah Muhammad. It espoused beliefs in civil rights for black people and black separatism and was often accused of militancy. Sam Cooke had been familiar with the Nation of Islam's beliefs through its high-profile leader Malcolm X, but had never quite agreed with them. However, when listening to Muhammad Ali, the Nation of Islam's positive views of black pride and independent black ownership resonated with Sam. 1963 truly was the year that Sam's eyes were opened. His friend and fellow musician J.W. Alexander gave him a new record that summer by a talented Jewish folk singer named Bob Dylan. Sam was blown away by the freewheeling Bob Dylan, but was especially taken by the song, Blowin' in the Wind. Sam told J.W. that he was amazed that a white man had written such a poignant song and was ashamed he hadn't composed something similar himself. Sam was a star, a crossover hitmaker who charmed black and white audiences alike with his smooth vocals and hip attitude. He was afraid of alienating the white audience that had finally accepted him but felt a growing need to speak up about the injustices his people were facing daily. The summer of 1963 was also a summer of terrible upheaval for Sam at home. He frequently cheated on his wife, Barbara, and she in turn was dating around. The only thing in Sam and Barbara's home life that seemed to be real was their love for their five children. Their tenuous relationship was struck a devastating blow when their son, Vincent, died on June 16, 1963. That day, 
The 18-month-old Vincent, still unsteady on his toddler feet, played in the backyard of Sam and Barbara's Los Angeles home near the pool. His older sister, three-year-old Tracy, was watching him. Vincent spotted his toy duck in the water and tottered towards the edge, reaching out his pudgy arms to grab it. A few minutes later, Tracy found Barbara in the house. She told her mother, Vincent's in the pool. Barbara sprinted outside and dove into the water, still fully dressed. She frantically swam towards where the boy was floating, face down. The phone call came when Sam was just getting ready to leave his office at SAR Records. Sam dropped his coat and briefcase and raced outside to his car. By the time Sam reached the house, it was too late. The emergency service workers had tried to revive the toddler, but were unable to save him. Sam burst through the lines of EMTs and firefighters to hold his son one last time. Sam rode in the ambulance with Vincent all the way to the morgue. There was nothing more he could do. Sam Cook lost his son, and tragedy would strike again just a year and a half later in December 1964. We'll talk about what happened that night at the Hacienda Motel when we return. Now back to the story. On June 16, 1963, 32-year-old Sam Cook lost his son in an accident in the family swimming pool. Vincent's death profoundly affected Sam. Though he still kept his easygoing celebrity persona, he found himself becoming more serious and jaded. The more cynical Sam became hyper-aware of the discrimination he faced, too. Months after Vincent's death in October 1963, he was turned away from a hotel near Shreveport, Louisiana, even though Sam had prior reservations. After a confrontation with the hotel's manager, Sam was arrested later that night for honking his horn and disturbing the peace. It was yet another instance where he was treated as a second-class citizen, and the only way Sam could push back was by expressing himself through song. In December 1963, seven months after the death of his son, Sam gave his friend J.W. Alexander a call. He had a new song he wanted to play for him. A few hours later, Sam sat in his house with J.W., strumming his guitar and softly singing. Listening to Sam, J.W. felt as if something huge was happening. In the lyrics, he could hear Sam's experiences, his own experiences, and the black community's experiences. Sam knew the song had to be big. He brought it to Renee Hall, his friend and longtime musical arranger, and told him to give the song the orchestration it deserved. When Renee and Sam met in the studio a month later, in January 1964, he came with a score of instruments, kettle drums, French horns, strings, the works. Sam's final song, A Change Is Gonna Come, had the depth and dignity of a cinematic score. Renee Hall arranged separate dynamic movements for each verse, all capped off with Sam's wailing, earnest vocals. It was a masterpiece. After he cut the record, Sam played the ambitious ballad for his friend Bobby Womack. In the darkened music room at Sam's house, as the last strains of the violins faded into silence, Bobby turned to Sam. 
He said, quote, It feels like death. The strings and everything is creepy. Something's going on. It sounds like somebody died. Sam nodded. He replied that he was never going to sing it in public, which was mostly true. From the song's recording in January 1964 to his death that December, he rarely sang it live. Throughout 1963, Sam became more in tune with the civil rights movement, something he had always supported. Now, with this recording, he was using his platform as a star to add his voice to the conversation. A Change Is Gonna Come became an instant hit and a new anthem for the civil rights movement. No doubt when Sam was writing the song, he was reflecting on injustices like the Shreveport Hotel debacle that had occurred only a few weeks earlier. But it was the hope of a new equal world in which his son Vincent could have flourished that truly inspired the song. He may not have anticipated that soon, death would come knocking again. The evening of December 10th, 1964, 33-year-old Sam Cook met 22-year-old Lisa Boyer at Martoni's Italian restaurant in Hollywood. After a few hours of drinking and getting to know each other, at 1.30 a.m., Sam asked Lisa if she'd like a ride in his cherry red 1964 Ferrari. It's hard to say exactly what happened that night because the facts of the case have been heavily disputed. We're going to tell the story as Lisa claimed things occurred, but doubts persist about whether her version of the story was true. Sam and Lisa made a pit stop at PJ's, a nearby Hollywood nightclub where Sam was a regular. There, Sam quickly became jealous of another young man that sat down beside Lisa to begin talking to her. Sam exploded at the man, slinging curse words. He was obviously drunk, his words slurring as he yelled. Lisa and Sam quickly finished their drinks and left the nightclub. When Lisa first got in the car, she expected Sam to drive her home to the cheap motel she lived at on Sunset Boulevard. But instead, Sam hopped onto the freeway heading south toward downtown Los Angeles. They drove rapidly through the city, Sam drunkenly swerving the whole time. It wasn't long before Sam pulled into the parking lot of the Hacienda Motel in South Los Angeles, 17 miles away from PJ's. Outside the manager's office, a white hand-painted sign proclaimed that rooms cost only $3 and up. Sam hopped out of the car and hurried to the window at the manager's office. Bertha Franklin, a 55-year-old stocky black woman, was the manager on duty that night. She watched as Sam signed the register with his real name. This was significant. Usually, if a celebrity was intending to commit nefarious deeds at a cheap motel, they'd at least use a pseudonym. Lisa exited the car and followed Sam up to the window. Later, Lisa claimed that she asked Sam again to drive her home, but he ignored her. Bertha didn't remember Lisa saying anything to Sam, but she did take note of the young woman's presence. She gestured to Lisa and told Sam, you have to put down Mr. and Mrs. Bertha was used to these sorts of situations. With such a low room rate, she often got couples looking for a place to have illicit sex. 
She didn't care if Sam and Lisa were married, but her register had to reflect that a woman had checked in with him. Sam shrugged and complied. He wrote down the time on the register as 2.35 a.m. The evening then took a turn for the violent. Sam grabbed Lisa's arm, forcing her upstairs to the motel room. She protested, asking him once again to drive her home. This was the third time Sam refused to let her leave. Without responding to her request, Sam pushed Lisa into the room and pinned her down on the bed. He ripped her sweater off, and at that moment, she knew he was going to rape her. Before he could do anything to her, though, Lisa asked to use the bathroom. He relented, letting her get off the bed and go to the small washroom. While in the bathroom, Lisa tried to figure out how to escape. She attempted to open the small bathroom window, but the edges were painted over, making it impossible to open. Seeing no other alternative, she dried her hands and returned to the room. Lisa came back to find Sam had taken his clothes off. He slipped by her and went into the bathroom, closing the door behind him. This was her chance. Lisa grabbed her pile of clothes from the floor and ran out the door. In her hurry, Lisa inadvertently grabbed Sam's clothing as well. Lisa ran down the stairs in just her slip and dashed to the manager's office. She hammered on the door, but no one answered. That was because Bertha Franklin was on the phone. Oftentimes, to break up the night shift, she spoke with her boss, Evelyn Carr. She heard the sound of knocking and told Evelyn to hang on. She went to see what it was. Afraid Sam would emerge from the bathroom soon, Lisa turned and ran across the parking lot without waiting for Bertha to come to the door. When Bertha answered, she saw nobody there. Lisa ducked into an alley to change into her clothes, dropping Sam's in the process. Then she found a telephone booth and quickly dialed 911, claiming to have been a victim of kidnapping. The time of her phone call was 3.08 a.m., 33 minutes after she and Sam had checked into the motel. After she missed Lisa, Bertha turned to go back to her phone, but she was interrupted by another series of pounds at the door. These knocks were louder and more frenzied than the first. Sam Cook was outside, stark naked, except for his jacket and shoes. Sam yelled, where is the girl? Bertha yelled back to him, telling him there was no girl in the office. This seemed to satisfy him for the moment, and he retreated from the door. Sam went back to his car and drove towards the exit. But before he reached the road, he stopped, got out of the car, and stalked back towards Bertha Franklin's office. Now Bertha could see Sam through the sliding glass window. He yelled at Bertha again, demanding to know where Lisa Boyer was. Evelyn Carr would later testify that she heard him yelling through the phone as well as everything that happened next. Bertha told him he could call the police if he wanted to search her office. Sam yelled, damn the police, and he took a running start at the office door. Using his shoulder as a battering ram, the drunk and enraged Sam Cook bashed his way through the flimsy office door. His eyes hazy and unfocused, he looked quickly around the office, searching for the missing Lisa Boyer. When he couldn't find Lisa, he turned his attention to Bertha. 
He grabbed her arm, twisting it while asking where she'd hidden the girl. She later explained, quote, He grabbed both my arms and started twisting. We got into a tussle. We fell to the floor. He fell on top of me. I was scratching, kicking, biting, everything. Pushing Sam off of her, Bertha was able to struggle to her feet. She reached for the 22 caliber pistol she kept on top of her TV set in case of robberies. Bertha fired off three shots. The first two missed, embedding themselves in the ceiling above them. The final bullet, fired from a range of just an inch and a half, found its mark in Sam Cook's chest. In shock, Sam yelled, Lady, you shot me. He clutched at his heart and reached for Bertha. Bertha grabbed a heavy broom handle which lay on the desk nearby and began beating Sam, trying to stop him. But Sam wouldn't be going any further. As both of his lungs collapsed and blood gushed from his chest, Sam Cook slid toward the floor of the manager's office. At 3.15 a.m. on Friday, December 11, 1964, 33-year-old Sam Cook died. Evelyn Carr, who had heard the whole affair over the phone, called the police and told them to head to the Hacienda Motel. She told them, quote, A guy just broke in the door. I think she shot him. I don't know. At first glance, Sam Cook's death was a justifiable homicide. Bertha Jenkins, fearing for her life after Sam's attack, killed him in self-defense. Sam was intoxicated and enraged and had attacked Lisa Boyer earlier that night. It seemed Sam was a drunken, violent lout who kidnapped one woman and attacked another. Had he survived the shooting, he would have been on his way to a Los Angeles jail cell that night. But friends and family of the late singer couldn't believe the story that Lisa Boyer and Bertha Franklin were telling. And the evidence didn't match the accounts that Lisa and Bertha gave. It seemed Sam Cooke's death was a lot more complicated than originally thought. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday with part two of Sam Cooke. We'll go step-by-step step through the aftermath of Sam Cooke's death and the grand jury trial that would lead to Bertha Jenkins' acquittal. We'll also dive into the conflicting theories as to why Sam was killed and determine once and for all what happened that night at the Hacienda Hotel. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Molly Quinlan and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 